Hey, what's up? Today on the Burn This World podcast, we are talking to James Rhodes, the vice president and co-founder of a record label called Fixed, which just so happens to be the record label I'm signed to. Uh, this dude has been working in this industry for quite a while doing this stuff. And so this is one of the most insightful conversations I've ever had. Uh, even a couple things in it that blew my freaking mind. Before we dive in, I want to say head over to burnthisworld.com, click join the community, come hang out with us. It's a bunch of people just like you, just like me, sharing music, and there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for my projects, the Browning and Death X Destiny, showing my writing process and just all this sort of stuff. So burnthisworld.com, click join the community, or head to the description of the podcast and click join. So we'll see you in there. Let's get into this podcast with James this is Johnny McBee, and you're listening to the Burnless Wall Podcast. All right, we're here with James. How are you doing today? I'm good. Happy to be here. Iowa is an interesting spot for a record label to operate out of. Um, have you, is that like just where you're from, or like how did it end up being based in Iowa? Yeah, so I'm... From here, you know, I was actually born in Ohio, um, but I've lived here since I was three years old. So my whole, you know, growing up and adult life has all been here in Iowa. My family's here and my wife's family's here. So we're, we're, we have roots here. I did move away to Los Angeles for one year back in 2005. Um, but then when I moved back is when I actually uh, co-found Fixed with Clayton and you know, it just started as uh, an extra bedroom in my house uh, here in, in Burlington, Iowa, in the southeast corner. And then we've we've grown from there to offices and, and bigger office spaces. Did you move to L.A. trying to do the music thing or what? Yeah, I was working with Clayton and had been his first employee uh, you know, started really as as a volunteer. I was on his street team, became his first employee. I was working, you know, uh, out of, you know, again, just a, a spare bedroom in my house, doing some work for him, running his merchandise, and then started getting involved on a few things. And his manager from Los Angeles, Tyler Bacon, who runs a company called Position Music, he offered me a job to move to LA and like fully go into like, you know, the music business side of things. So, um, I was in my early 20s. This is back in 2005 and moved, you know, picked up, moved cross country, uh, you know, like 2000 miles with a U-Haul and pulling my car on a trailer behind a U-Haul, totally uprooted and loved the music business, learned a ton from Tyler and Position Music, spent a year, you know, in LA, but by the end of that year, realized we didn't love LA, didn't love the, you know, just being in that city and we're, we're more small town, Iowa, uh, folk. And then realized when we moved back and, and started doing fixed, you know, from here that I could totally be in the music industry and do what I love doing from Iowa and, and could do it from anywhere, really. Definitely. And for people that don't know, Clayton is a cell dweller and, um, and cell dweller is a artist legendary in rock with electronics and metal with electronics. And so that's who, that's who he's talking about with clay. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, but, uh, yeah. And that's just interesting. So you, you moved there with the intention of working with cell dweller. Like how would you guys have gotten in touch in the first place? That was like barely in the precipice of the internet. Right. So, I mean, when I was in, you know, like middle school and high school in the 90s, I found a cassette in a bargain bin at a record store um, for this album called Brainchild by Circle of Dust. And I didn't even know what it sounded like. The artwork was just super cool. So completely random find based on the cover art. Picked up this cassette. It was like industrial metal fell in love with it and then started following circle of dust and found out that that was Clayton's project in the nineties. But about as quickly as I discovered it and got into a few circle of dust albums, uh, I saw that he had announced he was no longer doing circle of dust and the project had been signed with a label. 
Um, he had, uh, you know, and, and was pretty public about not being happy about his label situation. The label went bankrupt, but when he tried to leave and move to another label, they were like, well, you're still under contract, so you can't go anywhere, but we don't have any money to put your stuff out. So he was totally stuck in this, you know, deal and he decided to just kill the project. And, and so Circle of Dust ended. And then over this kind of getting into the late 90s uh, and early internet, I saw that he announced, you know, a new project, Cell Dweller. And so in 1999, he started Cell Dweller. And I was just, you know, a random fan, just following, joined his street team, was keeping up with news online. And then he had this opportunity for street team members to come meet him in person in the studio in Detroit. And they sent out a newsletter to, to their email list. And it was like the first 16 people to respond could get a spot in this uh, street team studio visit. And I, you know, immediately responded, didn't even think about how far away it was to drive or, you know, costs of like travel and lodging. But I was like, I want to be there and meet him. So I would have been, uh, this was like, I think in 2000 that I did that. And so I met him for the first time at the studio visit, met his manager, Tyler, and was so inspired by like hearing music and like what the new sound of Cell Dweller was that I wanted to help more. So I started volunteering further on the street team, asking for more ways to get involved. And it was just, you know, passion and, and, you know, wanting to see him succeed that, brought me further to his attention out of all of the other street team members. Eventually he asked me to be his first employee and, and I took over running his merchandise. And then when Tyler offered me a job to move to LA, it was the day job would be working at position music, which managed cell dweller as well as managed a couple other artists and then was a film TV licensing and publishing company. So I got to see and learn how that whole side of the industry worked. Um, but then I continued to run Clay's merchandise for Cell Dweller um, on my own. So like I would come home in the evenings and if there were orders, I would, you know, package orders up and take them to the post office and ship them out. So I was still working for Clay in addition to working at the management company um, and then when I moved back to Iowa, it just became, you know, starting a label together and, and Clay and I starting fixed. And it's, it's so interesting with that, too, because like half the people that have been involved with the Browning have started off as fans initially. Like the guitarist that we had in the band for like five years, he was a fan of the band before he came to all of our shows in multiple states even Keem, who's in the band now, he was initially just a fan, and that's how we came into contact. Our merch guy that's been on the road with us for, like, seven years, same yeah. thing. Like, all of it. It's um, There's something about, like, whenever you're an artist and someone shows so much interest and is uh, it just they're more passionate about it if they actually enjoy the music or enjoy the band in the first place. And um, so it's definitely the type of people you want to work with is people that like what you're doing. Uh, for sure. And so now looking back, cause I mean, that's been, uh, what if it was mid nineties and early two thousands over 20 years, um, the, are you still like a fan of what Clay Clayton does after working with them so long or did the whole <laughs> meet, meet your heroes thing no. kind of ruin it? <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, he, I'm still here because I love working with Clayton. He's still a, a pillar of what I get to work on. Um, and, and now I manage him as well. So I went, you know, full from like fan to working with him to managing him. And, you know, I've learned a ton through all of the years of working with him. And, and that's also why I'm, you know, still a part of leading fixed and running the label is not only getting to do with him, but finding other artists, inclu including you with the Browning, like being a fan and, you know, looking at what you were doing from afar, building a relationship. And now we're officially working together, um, you know, as a label and merch partner. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's kind of like the, the dream is, you know, finding artists that we love as a label and working with them to support them. So whenever, um, whenever you're looking at artists, because there's a lot of people that listen to this that are 
kind of on that early stage of being an artist or being a band. Um, like not even necessarily fixed, or I guess we can start with what fixed looks looks at, but like whenever a label is looking to sign somebody, like what what are you guys even paying attention to in the first place? Now fixed is pretty specific with it needing to be, you know, pretty heavy electronic and, you know, a certain vibe. Fixed has a very certain vibe to it. But in general, like what are what are people even what are our band or sorry, labels? How you pique the interest of a label as a band that's starting out? Yeah, so we have historically really developed a lot of artists from very early beginnings, like really small artists. A number of things that we've done over the years have been just finding somebody really talented that, you know, is starting at zero and growing it from zero into something. And of course, you know, we've been around as a label now for for almost 18 years. We have, have started signing bigger and bigger things where they're already established. But we still have very much a, a passion and an eye and an ear for finding things that are are young and need nurturing and development. Um, so we've been, you know, successful over the years and taking things from zero or near zero to, you know, hundreds of thousands of monthly listeners and really finding an audience for that artist. Um, and then, you know, our our goal is always to make the artist bigger by working together with them than if they were on their own. So, um, you know, we do 50, 50 net profit deals across the board. Um, so we want to be, you know, artist friendly, we're going to share net profits. So the, for an artist to want to sign to a label and give up, you know, half of the, the potential revenue, you know, we don't want to just be taking half of what they would have made. We want to make the pie so much bigger that they're making more in their half than if they were doing it all by themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that, so that's, that's always our my goal. thoughts. Like, um, you know, just with how fixed might operate, you know, I'll, uh, ideally, and I think realistically, I'll be making more than 50% more. So that 50% is almost just like, you know, paying on your guys in, but I'm still making a hundred percent of what I would have made before just because the build is going to be so much more. So that is, yeah. You know, yeah. I, I love that you phrased it that way because, um, I think there is, you know, that is a common, you know, argument of people like they're so focused on just what they're making currently that they're going to have to give some of what they're currently making up. Um, and certainly there are labels. Um, we, you know, Clayton has worked with three labels previously that he's had bad deals. They weren't even 50, 50 deals. You know, they were very skewed um, in the labels favor, not a fair, even split. Um, but the, there, there's so many horror stories and, and you've had them as well, Johnny, from, from, from yeah. previous <laughs> experiences. Um, so, but that's why we take pride in in what we do at Fixed in being a, a fair 50-50 split deal and, and showing like there is an alternative. Yeah. Um and so and it's, offering yeah, go ahead. Fixed is a bit different in it with it just being more artist uh um focused, which is why you're saying like you guys are down to find the the no name artist that just is very, very skilled. But um like back to the to the question that I was wondering, it's like what like ninety percent of labels aren't down for that, you know, right? <laughs> and so, right. like just based off of your experience working with in this industry and seeing other labels, like the majority of people aren't going to be able to work with Fix just because the stylistically. But how can someone? What is another label going to be looking for for someone to 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 pique their interest? You know, we are looking for things that are established as well as opportunities to find something, you know, uh, less developed and get involved earlier on. But I, I do think, to your point, a lot of labels do just want to sit back and wait till it's completely already, you know, successful independently and then get involved. And, you know, that that leaves a lot of artists without that opportunity um to get a label's attention so it's like what can an artist do to get a label's attention if, if they're seeking one and i think th to put it the simplest way i can it's just to be unique 
I don't know how often we go through music submissions or we look at new bands. And if, if we, if we listen to 20 bands and I couldn't tell you what the difference is between any 20 of them, they all sound a bit generic. Like this is like, this all sounds like scene metal, or this just all sounds like the same, you know, five other bands that they're all referencing. Like that's not interesting to us. Like we're looking for artists that are unique and that are doing something different. So, you know, encouraging people to, to be different, be unique. Like the world already has everything else that's out there. What's something new and different and, and, you know, bringing your tastes to the table, whatever your influences are, but presenting it in a unique way. For sure. I mean, I, I would prefer to listen to something that typically would not be uh, considered to be like really good, but that it's just different and surprising and weird. Like I just, uh, yeah. I, if I'm going to listen to straightforward music, it's going to be just some, you know, super popular artist that is just, you know, brain dead stuff that I can just turn on and listen in the background. If I'm actually going to listen and pay attention, like it's going to be something weird, you know, something just totally different. And uh, so I agree with that. I think that, uniqueness is i mean even whenever it comes down to image and name and everything there's so many stereotypes like early 2000s metalcore every band was uh blank the blank you know bless the fall yeah like every single name was <laughs> yep. the same there was like a 10 year period was that was every single freaking band name so there's just these trends that go throughout all the scenes and then after bands like volumes got popular Every single band started a uh, one word with an S. We got landmarks, we got monuments, <laughs> we got all of them, you know? And so yeah. there's just these random trends that hit. And my thought, I was just talking about this uh, with the company that I run outside of this. And the thing is, like, if you're following the trend of a popular artist, you're behind. Like, you have to be the person yeah. that creates that trend in the first place. Uh, like, um, you know, we're talking with my company. What can we do? What do the people in the field want right now? And it's like, if it's what they want right now, that means that by the time you produce it, by the time you make it, by the time you get there, it's going to be too late. We need to cre we need to create the like demand for a product they don't even know they want. And it's the same thing totally. in music. You have to you have to be the thing that sets the trend rather than being the thing that follows, because then you're behind. Yeah, I think uh, to tag on to that, you know, we really focus on, you know, things that are authentic. And I, that's a word that's been a buzzword lately. And I feel like it's overused. But specifically, what I mean by that is like artists that are just chase, you know, chasing a trend or a fad or artists that are, you know, botting their playlists or buying fake followers. Like we can sniff that out. And we, we try to sniff that out because these numbers weren't real. And now we spent all this money on something thinking it, it was something that it wasn't. So when I think of authenticity, that's kind of how I think about that word. Um, you know, obviously there's artistic credibility, artistic authenticity, which was another side of it. Um, but yeah, I think just to state it here, the genres that fixed focuses on is very much this hybrid electronic rock sound. Um, you know, from industrial, we use the phrase future rock. Um, there's, you know, rocktronica. There's a lot of terms. I, I don't think there's a term that covers it all, but it's, it's some form of, you know, very electronic production with rock and metal. And, you know, I believe what clay was doing in the nineties a circle of dust and then early cell dweller. Um, he, he definitely was early in some of that sound. And, you know, when he first launched cell dweller, we had quite, um, you know, a few people, fans, just things we heard over the years be like when they first listened to it, they didn't quite get it. But then by you know, a few listens in, it became some of their favorite music so, and then we've heard like, oh, it, is it ahead of its time? Like the audience may not have been ready for it, but then it's something so unique that over time it develops this cult following, which creates these diehards. Yeah. So being, you know, niche and like something super unique, initially it may not be mass market, but if you can build those diehard fans that stay with you 
And then over time, it just amasses into a bigger audience. Yeah. And uh, I view a lot of that because people do say it's better to um, be in the top of a smaller niche than be in the bottom of the vastness of nothing, you know? And, right. uh, and it's the same thing with the Browning. Um, you know, we have a very dedicated base of people that no matter when we play, they're at the shows. Um, you know, we don't have the biggest numbers online, but when we show up to places to play, like people seriously turn up rather than just like not necessarily caring, you know, I listen to the music, but I don't really care that much. You know, people really care about this stuff and with it, authenticity, that's something that I think was a lot easier to do when bands were, um, more focused on like live appearances and more focused on, uh, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff. Cause you had this personal collect- connection rather than in the modern world. Most of the time it's, you know, you're throwing a lot of stuff showing your life out there, but it's kind of not personally connecting with individuals. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily have a term for it in the music realm, but I'll use a term that people use in gaming, like gaming companies, they call certain customers whales. Um, they're the mm. people that, uh, the few amount of people that do all the microtransactions, they make up like 90% of the money that this game makes, you know, yeah. and they're whales. So you have this vast amount of people that are kind of on the surface playing, but then you have these whales that are carrying the future of the game. And, uh, it's kind of similar in music too. If you're doing something and you connect with people on a personal level, you're going to get these people that tell everybody about it. They come to all your stuff. They buy every single merch drop. They do all this stuff and really help carry your career. And so because they can tell you're authentic, they can tell that you're um, doing something unique. And definitely, I feel like if you're putting out stuff that's very surface level music, um, you you might reach a lot of people, but you don't connect in a certain way like something like Seldweller did being so unique back then and being groundbreaking in some way. Um, and so I just think it's, uh, I, I think you're right. Authenticity and uniqueness are the two things that everyone needs to focus on pretty much no matter what they're doing, uh, whether it's music totally. or not. Um, and with that, do you, so you've built a lot of these or helped, um, build certain new bands in the modern world compared to the early two thousands. I felt like it, certain things were easier. Do you feel it's harder to grab um like help get attention to a younger product project now versus like back then or like how do you even go about hey this band we just picked them up they're talented they're sitting at a thousand monthly listeners let's get that up and how yeah. can someone even do that without the resources that you guys have because you guys do have certain resources that the average person doesn't have access to so how does the average person sitting at 500 to a thousand monthly listeners um build in the modern world yeah i think it has gotten you know completely different than it was you know 10 15 years ago um but there's different pros and cons to to both time periods i you know there was press was a bigger driver 10 years ago like if you got a big press feature with a cool magazine or blog or outlet like it drove discovery and listeners and people actually looked at it you know, we can have today some of the biggest press outlets cover something and it looks cool. It looks, you know, sexy and, and whatever. But then you go look at like um, if they had embedded a YouTube video that they premiered and like it's this huge outlet and there's a hundred views on it because like they didn't really drive real uh-huh. traffic to it. So, you know, press is not what it used to be, you know, in in the modern like 2023 era streaming is definitely driving so much of discovery obviously spotify being you know the the whale of the streaming market and you know algorithmic playlists suggesting things like i personally have discovered more artists and new music in the last you know five or six years just from my personal listening dives into spotify um, and that has translated on the label side where we're discovering artists we never would have found before through, you know, similar artists and algorithmic suggestions. As far as what, you know, artists that are listening to this could be doing, um, I think, you know, the the real answer 
that that I believe in is not one that I think a lot of people want to hear, but what I think really gets results is showing up consistently over time, which which equates to patience. It's you got to have that micro hustle. You're 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 grinding and working hard now, but realizing it takes macro patience for the payoff. And I think back to to Cell Dweller, like back in the debut album came out in 2003 and we would get com- compared to them or like on show bills and like that they, they were like these artists that were way bigger and everybody gave them attention and then the bands broke up or they just like stopped releasing music and it's like now 15 years later the trajectory that clayton has maintained by being consistent over the long term he's built this huge platform and and is more successful than when you look back at those bands but it, it took that long day by day, brick by brick, building it. And again, some people, you know, just want that quick overnight uh, result. But just sticking with it consistently, fans realize like, oh, there's there's substance here. There's depth here. You're going to be around versus, you know, the kind of the flash in the pan, pan bands mm-hmm. that they show up. They're big for like a minute and then everybody forgets about them. Yeah, that happens so often in metalcore. Um, like, especially it's seemingly in kind of the realm that the Browning like was in, and for quite a while, you had these bands that came in that everyone was just expecting to be the next Axe and Alexandria or whatever. And uh, I don't know. It, it seems like every time it's um, it's greed and someone thinking that they're a rock star that ruins yeah. it immediately. And, yep, and it it just happens almost every single freaking time. And I mean, maybe the advantage that Cell Dweller has is he doesn't have to deal with any other fools ruining his project. <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. There's there's uh there, there's some, something to be said for um and where we're at currently with like modern production. Like you can be a solo artist in in producing in in a bedroom or or a home studio. And you can have quality recordings, great production. You can do it on your own. You can play multiple instruments. Um, you know, we we work with a lot of solo artists, solo producers that that do their own production mixing. We still work with lots of bands that get paired with a producer or a mixer. Um, but it is it's so much more accessible now to be a solo artist. And 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 to the point about bands versus solo artists sometimes bands break up and then that kills the entire project. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I mean, some bands evolve and, and continue even after they lose members. Um, and, and, and I mean, you've had lineup changes in, in the Browning over the years and, and super cool to, to see, you know, Keem and Cody yeah. uh, as part of this new era. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I feel like you, a lot of these mainstay bands have a mainstay person, you know, um, there's a couple yeah. bands that for whatever reason they hit the nail on the head and they just have the same members forever. Like August burns red or, you know, they just, re- and I feel yeah. like, I feel like one of the things about that is bands that really blow up decently quickly, but have good enough guys in the band. They don't have to switch them out. It's most of the time that you see yeah. a bajillion member changes. It's bands that have been grinding on the road for, you know, seven years without any progress. That's where you get a million member changes. Um, yeah. and so, you know, success does help a little bit, probably ease the, uh, the tensions, but, uh, yeah, with the solo project stuff, that's something I kind of wanted to talk about because I feel like it's something that a lot of people feel restricted is they're like, Oh, I don't, you know, there's, I live in the middle of Iowa. There's no drummers here. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, cause it was the same thing with me in Kansas city. There was no one that I was that that I felt was able to do what I wanted to do with it. And so, you know, I ended up moving, but in the modern world, uh, with all these solo projects, I mean, I feel like people could have a full-on career with it. And so uh, I'm just curious because I don't even know. I've, I've Since my inception into the music business, I've been a signed artist. I, I've never released anything independently or anything. But seemingly now is the basically first time almost that being an independent artist potentially is more beneficial than signing depending on obviously who you're working with and whatnot. And so I'm just curious, um, 
like someone that is independent and I'm not asking for specific numbers or anything, but if you're able to be a solo artist that doesn't have a deal that is releasing music and somehow you get up to 50,000 monthly listeners or something like that, like how much money on average is someone making as a solo artist, not involving a deal or anything based off of like a 50,000 monthly listener type streams. Real quick, before James answers that question, I got to interject and say to head over to burnthisworld.com and join our community. Hang out with us. We've built a really sweet group of people there. I've made some really good friends in our server. And so I want you to be in there too. Come share your favorite music. Come hang out, watch live streams, see behind the scenes content for all of my music. And uh, yeah, it's just a good time. Burnthisworld.com and click join the community or head to the description of this podcast and click join. Hope to see you in there. Let's get back into it. So, I mean, that that is a, a challenging question to answer because there are so many other factors. Um, you know, I'll try to give some context and then circle back to yeah. answer that. Um, but when I think about that question, I think about examples that I've seen where we have artists that have more monthly listeners but actually have lower streaming numbers so they might have more people casually listening but those same people are only listening to like one or two tracks and then we've seen artists that they have fewer monthly listeners but they might have listeners that are like constantly streaming them so they actually drive more streams and the revenue is based on the number of streams Mm -hmm. so you know you could have a hit song that streams like crazy um, or you could have a bigger catalog, a lot of songs that streams. Okay. But with a bigger catalog, they're all generating streams. So there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, the, the rule of thumb and, and the rates have changed and stuff, but the rule of thumb has kind of always been, you know, a million streams on Spotify is probably depending on your deal and your distro and stuff, um, before a label split, but just like from Spotify, you know, probably thirty five hundred to four grand per million streams. Okay, and, and that's that's a stat you could go look up um, in various places publicly. Um, and then you know, so if you have an artist that's got fifty thousand followers, um, you know, we've we are sorry, fifty thousand monthly listeners. You know, they could they could definitely be in a scenario where they've got uh, songs or an album that are generating you know, a million or a couple million streams. And, you know, it's like, okay, that could be five, 10, 15 grand, mm-hmm. but it's like over what period of time, you know, if that's in a yeah. year or two years, you know, that, that may not be a sustainable living. So, um, you know, there's definitely like within our roster, we work with, you know, we're, we're around 20 artists currently on fixed and we have, a number of artists that they have day jobs and music is the side hustle and they're trying to build their music career to where they can go full-time music. Mm-hmm. We've got artists that are on the other end where they're making a full-time living, just being a musician and, and making music. And then people kind of in, in between. Yeah. And some people don't want to make it their full-time. They've got, you know, some crazy high paying day job that funds them, you know, being able to go, buy gear and do music and and maybe the success of the music project isn't the 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 driving factor it's more of like they just want to be creative they have a job that allows them to do that um so we've worked with some artists in that scenario um but for the most part you know we're working with artists that are are growing their careers towards the point of becoming full-time musicians. Yeah. Um, so what, what classifies a stream on Spotify? Like, so how far does someone have to get into the song? Yeah. 30 seconds past 30 seconds, um, quantifies a stream. So if, if, and, and this is, uh, something for people to take note of, if you're doing like intro tracks or like transition tracks on your album, make sure they're always over 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, because if they're less than 30 seconds, they could, somebody could listen to the whole thing and you actually get no royalty because Spotify pays out per stream rates and for it to be considered a stream, it has to play for more than 30 seconds. Um, 
There's also data, a lot of dashboards, some analytics companies that, you know, chart metric, um, various places track things, uh, or your distributor where you could be tracking your skip rate on Spotify. So like, Hey, people started the song. Maybe they even got past 30 seconds. So you're going to get a royalty, but 30% of the people that got past that point didn't make it past the 60 second mark or Mm -hmm. didn't complete the song. So there are some people that go deep on the uh, kind of the completion rate of, of listening. So maybe I was about to say, I want to know that. Like, I would like to see that data. (laughs) Yeah, there's some and and. Because that data has become available and the culture of, of, you know, Spotify stream generates revenue. You, you look at the data and see what's working. What's not, is it the song length? Is it intros? Is, was the outro too long? It has actually, there's been some, some other articles I've read over the last few years. There is a trend that artists are creating shorter songs because you realize whether you make a two minute song or a seven minute song, mm-hmm. it pays out at the same rate from Spotify. Right. So there have been artists that, that start doing shorter songs. Now, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing artistically is, is another discussion. Right. And I was, <laughs> I was listening to this thing. It was, uh, uh, baby and Oliver tree. Oliver tree is another example of this. And they literally start their song immediately with vocals straight into the hook. Like from the get go, there's no intro, there's yeah. no build, there's no drop. They literally, from the millisecond the song starts, they are in the hook. And maybe it yeah. is because that hook lasts 15, 20 seconds. And maybe it does just push it to where people will listen through that hook. But if there was an, if there was a, you know, 20 second build of ambience and whatnot, maybe people would have clicked past it in the first place. And so, Totally. Uh, and so, I mean, I honestly really would be interested to try to get my hands on that data to see like my songs, like, cause I do a lot of intros, you know, I'm, I've always yeah. been very cinematic and crap with my music. So, and so, yeah, it'd be yeah. interesting to see. Well, as we start releasing uh new Browning uh, material with fixed, we will absolutely look at that and share that with you. Cause we'll have access to it. Um, but a few other observations that we've made along these lines, um, couple, this has been a couple years ago, so this is slightly outdated, but the observation was meaningful to us. I researched like 30 of the top Spotify editorial playlists within the genres of music that our music might show up on. And we we analyzed them and realized there was a statistically significant uh, result or, or indicator that songs over four minutes long seemed less likely to get playlisted. And and we have a bunch of artists that have five, six, seven minute songs. And so we did an experiment. We actually took a song that was already out, uh, a Cell Dweller track that was six or seven minutes long. And it hit the Cell Dweller fan base and his followers and, and streamed quite well, but it never hit editorial on Spotify when it first came out. And we're like, was this because the song was too long? So we did a single edit. He Clay went back in, re-edited the song down to like three and a half minutes, and we called it a single edit. We released it as a new track, and it got Spotify editorial. And then we're like, that's interesting. So we've now done this on several Cell Dweller songs, and we have a few other artists on the label that have tried it, and it has also worked where we have a single edit version that seems to be more likely to get picked up for editorial playlisting. And then at the album level, we release the album version that is, you know, has, you know, a a minute long bridge section or the really long intro and we've experimented with releasing the album version first and then later a single edit or starting with a single edit and then releasing the album version. And it's it's added uh, a few more tools in our tool belt for how to release things and maximize them. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's important information to know. You know, <laughs> it's definitely. Yeah, because as, as everyone knows, getting the Spotify editorials makes a huge difference. You're talking you know, either you land on a Spotify editorial that has 700,000 followers on it, or you manly, manually reach out to 20 different playlists that have like 500 followers. Right, you know? And right. so it's uh, if you just have the ability to potentially land that. Now, speaking of the editorials, um, 
it, but so that's one metric that potentially leads to landing an editorial. But like, is the editorial literally a person sitting there listening to the editorial submissions? Because you can submit on the artist on your artist uh, profile thing. Right. Is there literally a person sitting there like listening? And so they're going to hear like <laughs> the quality of the of the recording and be like, nope. And like, right. What do you know? Like what? How this so, is actually done? I mean, I know that they Spotify, you know, employees, um, you know, something like it, it's at least, you know, a hundred plus genre curators. It may be hundreds, but I know like I know they have real people that are actually listening to things um and it varies by genre to my understanding you know what playlists within certain genres are getting like true human curation um i do believe and i i, I don't have uh concrete uh, evidence of this but i do believe that there are also quite a few playlists that spotify curates that that seem to be completely um algorithmic data ai kind of stuff so they're analyzing your songs they have tons of data that they when they read your audio file they're they're distinguishing just from the audio file let alone the other information you submit in the spotify for artist portal they're determining all of these characteristics about the song and the feel and the genre and the instruments so they can even without a human listening they can curate it into uh, a, a, a you know a category yeah. of genres um because we've seen we've seen some stuff where we're like well we submitted something based on this genre so we told the form it was this genre and then spotify edited it somewhere else um and we're like huh did somebody listen to it and move it to a different genre because they didn't think what we submitted was accurate and then other times we've submitted to uh, a genre with something that's like, this is a little more questionable if it fits this genre. If a real person listened to it, they might not push it through in this genre, but we thought it could lean there and it shows up on that playlist. And we're like, I don't even know if anybody actually listened to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guarantee you that they uh, are running a software to d at least get down the masses of uh, submissions that are, oh yeah, uh, can't make it like, for instance, like whenever you're mastering something, you can only go to a certain level of loudness before Spotify's algorithmic like compressor uh, just smashes your mix. So I bet that yeah. if you submit for um, for an editorial and and their algorithm just senses that your song is too loud, it probably auto automatically get denied for an editorial in the first place. So I bet they're using some sort of thing that just tracks it. And then maybe the last few things that make it through their software go to a person's actual ears. Um, yeah, I would guess that that's what they're doing. Uh, we randomly had, it was probably, I don't even know, just a couple of months ago, end of end of existence been out for almost two years or maybe two years at this point. And one of the songs randomly got put on a deathcore editorial playlist. And so there's definitely some human that was like, yeah. Hey, I'm going to put this on there. Like it happens. Yeah. Yeah. So much editorial stuff only seems to happen on new releases the week of release. Yeah. But we have seen catalog tracks just like that have been out for a year, two years, five years get added to something where, yeah, clearly somebody listened and then it came to their attention somehow. And then they feature things. Yeah. So it, it definitely can happen. And so this is all editorial playlists on Spotify, but obviously there's a lot of like user generated uh, playlists and stuff. And, you know, I have my own playlist that, you know, I call it like ultimate synth metal. Uh, current, that's what it is on Pandora, but currently on Spotify, it's called metal plus synths equals heart sign. Uh, but nonetheless, like what I did on my personal playlist is I was looking to get, get people over that wanted to hear metal with synths. But I just freaking filled that thing with Browning songs. Like I, I put in a bunch of other artists, you know, <laughs> Electric Callboys on there, Emotionless and White, uh, you know, Cell Dweller. A bunch of these artists are on there. But I made my own playlist to specifically try to push my music more. And yep. you know, my playlist has like four thousand or near five thousand likes on it on Spotify, and that that generates uh, 
depend if I'm pushing the playlist to get more people onto it, I'll get like 20,000 streams just specifically off of that playlist that I made myself. And um, so I feel like you could kind of curate it and fixed. I feel like this is one of the best things fixed does is you guys have about a bajillion playlists with all of your artists. on it. <laughs> yeah, we, we have been building our own label playlists and we, we have, you know, we have probably created 50 different playlists over the years. We currently focus, I think we have 12 public ones and we're actually about to narrow that down to closer to eight and really focus on like some key ones that we see the most traction with. But this is a huge piece of advice I'd give to any independent artist is don't pay third-party playlisting services, run your own ads to your own playlist and you fully control it and do exactly what you described, Johnny, where you have other artists as well as your own music. And then by driving traffic to it, part of what you're also doing is you're teaching the Spotify algorithm that the browning getting played right next to motionless and white, Spotify sees consistently all these people, those four or 5,000 people that you've, you've got on that playlist, that they're hitting these songs consecutively and that there's a data association that's training the algorithm. So in other places on Spotify where they're recommending to motionless and white fans songs that they might also like on like a motionless and white radio station or in some of their other playlists where algorithmic suggestions get made. Um, Discover Weekly, for example, is is a huge driver. Um, it's an algorithmic playlist every Monday on Spotify. And their algorithm looks at all of the artists that you currently have listened to and then sees, but there's a bunch of artists that we think you would like that you're not already listening to. We're going to suggest you some of that. So by you training the algorithm on your playlist that the Browning sits right beside those other artists, you're going to see their, their whole ecosystem respond. Now you have to feed a fair amount of data to the system to train that algorithm, but building four or 5,000 followers on a playlist over several years, you're consistently promoting it or running ads to it. You're going to build those data uh, associations and the algorithm will, will reward you for it. Yeah. I didn't know you, <clears throat> you can run ads on a playlist. Yeah. I just mean, if you go like you, you could run ads on Facebook oh, or Instagram where people are, you driving people from anywhere you're running an ad to that Spotify okay. playlist. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and with the whole third-party thing, um, <clears throat> it's actually against Spotify's terms of service to accept payments as a third-party for playlisting. Like, yeah, it's yeah. It, it's a it's be, it's been a, a mess of a, a transition. Like five years ago, you know, there was a point where we researched. We had a database of like two thousand playlist curators. We manually found playlists in Spotify. We saw who the creator was. We found them on Facebook. We DM them and we'd be like, hey, we have music in a genre that you have, you know, similar stuff in your playlist. You know, would you consider adding some of our stuff? And we had a year or two where we had just a ton of great experiences where people were playlisting our stuff. It was just for the love of the music. And then slowly but surely, we'd be messaging people and be like, oh, I'm not, I'm only adding stuff if you pay me 50 bucks or uh -huh. this. And, and, and we never paid for playlisting features. We, we, and that's back to kind of that authenticity. You know, we're, we don't like the pay for play stuff. Like yeah. we want the merit of the music to, to be what drives it. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that Spotify just hardcore cracked down on that because, uh, Keem had a really big playlist that he was, it was his name, but he had someone that was helping him like manage it. That other uh. person was taking payments for stuff and Spotify somehow figured that out and they deleted the whole playlist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It can get, it can get you in trouble. Yeah. And, and the other thing that independent artists you need to be aware of is, is there's a lot of scams and fraud out there where, some brand says, Hey, if you pay me X, you know, a thousand dollars a month, or I've seen $2,500, $3,000 a month, I'll playlist your songs and guarantee you streams. So you're going to get revenue back. And, and people go out and they pay it. And what they don't realize is a lot of these companies, they have, they've ran ads to grow the playlists, but then they get some real following, but then they're using bot farms to like send 
fake streams to these playlists. The artist sees streams happening. They think it's working. And what can happen on the back end is Spotify identifies these were fraudulent streams and they could pull the track from the service. They could block the artist from the service. Um, yeah, we get we get a, a fraudulent stream report every month from Spotify. So if if any of our tracks, not intentionally because we're don't, not doing that, but if somebody else has added some of our tracks to a playlist that has been botted, we actually get a report that lets us know that. Yeah. And we we had an artist once where we're like, we released a song from an artist that we had never worked with. And like, it had a hundred thousand streams in the first week. And we're like, this is awesome. And then we found out, you know, like a month and a half later, like 90,000 of those were totally bogus. And then, then went back and asked the artist, were you like doing something? He's like, Oh, I hired this promo company that said that they were going to promote the track. And, and he didn't get paid on those streams because Spotify never paid out because they identified it as fraudulent. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's definitely good to know because um, it <clears throat> you can you can tell a lot of times by certain bands' numbers that like something's not adding up here. Um, yeah, it's pretty obvious sometimes. And um, you know, I know you got to get out sometime quick, but I really wanted to touch on one subject, and that is something that I think Think Fix does really really well, which is um, like sync and licensing opportunities that you're able to get for a lot of artists now. Fixed type of music really lends itself towards cinematic and video games and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I don't know, is how does something like, wasn't one of cell dwellers tracks used on the trailer for Mulan? It was. Um, so how does something like so, that even come about? So this is definitely a, a whole other industry or side of the industry that is a, a bit more confusing it's super competitive and we have fortunately had a lot of success on that side and that has been a pillar of of our growth and success over the years so at the beginning of, of our conversation i mentioned moving to la working with position music um, they are a a music publisher and sync company so they pitch music for film tv so they're in la they have relationships with you know all the hollywood studios and the you know music supervisors so you know whether it's position or a bunch of other companies we we work with a company called centric s-e-n-t-r-i-c centrics to place our music um it is all about having your music available with the rights in a clearable state so um you know there there's master recordings there's like the the ownership of the the song the recording and then there's the publishing side the songwriting and intellectual side of the songwriting and a lot of people you know don't understand that when a movie wants to come license a song for their trailer they have to clear rights from both sides so if your music is signed with a label or independent and on the label side and then you've got a separate publisher that movie studio has to go do two different deals they have to go clear it with the label and with a publisher and what fixed has done from the very beginning is we've been a label and publisher which makes our music quote unquote one stop meaning anybody that wants to license our music can can clear it in one conversation we can clear both sides um and a lot of independent artists just don't understand the the rights differences between those and even if you you know there's been this kind of uh you know saying or adage throughout the years to artists like to not sign away your publishing and you know i think that has been said you know and hurt some artists from opportunities that they didn't fully understand how it works. But even if you own your publishing and never sign it away, if you don't have anybody representing it and you haven't gone and, re and set it up yourself, you're going to miss out on all those opportunities. So whether you, it's a non-exclusive deal or a full publishing deal, you know, to get into the game with getting your music and movie TV games, you, you know, you really need somebody with expertise on representing the recording and the publishing side. And then, then it's a combination of pitching out for opportunities. 
the relationship network that you know the the team working the music has so we do some direct outreach we have video game companies and publishers that we've built our own relationships with over the years that we do direct licensing with and we have people that become fans of our music because of the commercial success of it on spotify and and bandcamp and apple and all these other platforms so they they're not just looking for a generic song for a scene. Sometimes people are looking for our specific song. So they're reaching out to us saying, Hey, we want to license your song. And then other times it's one, a company that we work with that we partner with that they are pitching it to these opportunities through their own relationships. So it, there's a, a lot of complexity to it. Um, but it, it really starts with understanding the rights and, and trying to make your music easy to clear that when people reach out to you to license it, you have somebody that knows how to do that. For sure. And so probably for the average person, uh, if you have music that just like is ready for that, like it's just singing to be ready onto some sort of cinematic or video game, and that's what your goal is. But probably for the average person, it's best to try to find a company like Centric or APM or something like that that does this specifically. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And in, in that instance, some of those sync companies, they're only pitching for things. They're not the label. So they're not sending your, putting your music on Spotify and some, you know, pitching it to playlists. They're only fulfilling the pitching to film and TV role. So, you know, if you're independent, you might be working with a tune core or a distro kit or a symphonic for your own distribution or, or, or working with a label. And, you know, you can end up having multiple partners where, where you've got a lot of relationships to manage. So that's why fixed has tried to be more of a one-stop partner for our artists where we do the label side, the publishing side and the merchandise side and try to build you know, multiple revenue streams. Definitely. And multiple revenue streams is how, if you're a solo artist or someone that's sitting there thinking like, I can't make this work. Like you can, you just have to diversify. I mean, I have a, you know, subscriptions on my discord for behind the scenes content. You know, I try to focus on merch. There's a million different ways that you can try to help monetize to uh, inspire you and having a company that is fully focused on getting those sync opportunities. Like you, you got to, at some point uh, take some of the burden off of yourself and let, let someone else that's focusing on it, do it, which is probably to kind of loop everything back in how you got involved with cell dweller in the first place. He was wanting some help to manage his merchandise and you were right there ready to take that burden off of him, you know? And so yeah. it's, uh, you know, everything really comes full circle and it's just important for artists to understand. And this is something I struggle with and that I'm learning is to, um, you know, trust people that are, that are clearly wanting to help me and have the capabilities of doing it. So, you know, don't be scared of help. Uh, the people that are um, really, you know, fans and supportive of you, let them help because they'll really love doing it. And you never know, maybe one day uh, one of your fans will start a label for you and just, you know, just, you know, it's just awesome. Totally. It's, it's a, it's a good roundabout way to um, just you see how everything has gone for you and your start in this. And this probably is the most insightful podcast I've had. So I appreciate you being here chatting with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, always a pleasure to chat with you, Johnny. And yeah, if I could leave a parting message, um, it would be, I see so many people nowadays want to be entrepreneurs, start their own thing. And, and, I wouldn't have started my own thing on my own. I needed to find somebody that I believed in as a creative artist to, to partner on building something with. And that was Clayton for me. But I would encourage listeners, if there's an artist, whether it's a musician or from, you know, a creative person from another field that like, you don't always just have to go start your own thing. I think there's more opportunities for cool things to happen in the world when people join together on a on a combined mission so i think there's there's more opportunity for people to go hit up one of their favorite artists and see like do you need help with something like maybe there's a a business to start together i think a lot of artists have creative visions that they don't know how to fulfill on all on their own mm -hmm. and they're looking for somebody to come in and, and be a part of that journey 
Definitely. 100%. I totally, totally agree. And again, thank you so much being here chatting, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Yeah. Thanks, Johnny. Yep. Peace. Appreciate you listening all the way through that episode, and we'll see you in the next one. And before that, head over to burnthisworld.com and click join the community. Come kick it with us. See ya. Have a good one. Peace.